Hello and welcome to the TIFF podcast, where we explore the world of public health, interviewing registrars, academics and leaders in the profession. I am Dino Motti, public health consultant in Gloucestershire, England, and leading this episode with me today is Josh. Please, Josh, could you introduce yourself? Thanks, Dino. Uh, so I'm Josh Hawkins. I'm an academic clinical fellow and public health registrar in the southwest of England. The aim of this podcast is to offer a wide panoramic of what experience specialty training can provide, while offering some suggestions and inspiration to those who are planning their next placement or who would like to train in public health. Our episode today opens season three in earnest with an interview of Professor Maggie Ray, current president of the Royal Society of Medicine's Epidemiology and Public Health section, recent president of the UK Faculty of Public Health, and head of school for the public health training program in the Southwest. I'm sure there will be a lot for us to cover. Maggie, welcome. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, thank you so much, uh, Dino. And a real pleasure to be able to work with you and Josh on this important podcast. I'm Maggie Ray, and my day job is I work in the Southwest region. I work for Health Education England as the head of the Southwest Population and Public Health Academy and head of school. And I also have the privilege of working with the regional public health team. And I'm currently technically based in the NHS. Maggie, welcome. And thank you so much again for joining us. So you also recently completed your presidency of the Faculty of Public Health. How are you feeling? Have you had a chance to take a holiday yet? Well, um, you're going to get all my secrets today, Josh. So um, I have planned a little holiday with my um, my husband and we are heading off at the end of September to, um, to do our favourite thing, which is cycling. We're going to be cycling in, in France. So very much looking forward to that. And to be fair, this time of year is really pretty busy for me because um, the new public health registrar group the new population fellows, they all start at this time of year. So I've been delighted to focus on that. But yes, very much looking forward to a lovely break later on. I think well deserved. We're going to come to the training program role shortly, I think. But with the Faculty of Public Health Presidency, I think there's so much we could discuss there. Do you mind if we start by first asking you to reflect a little on your time there? Yes, well, I think it was probably the most tumultuous time that we've all ever experienced in our lives. Many of us have worked through pandemics. In actual fact, it was my fourth pandemic. But I don't think in our lifetime we've never never had to deal with anything like that. So that huge impact, not just on... Um, not just on the, the UK, but right across the world, was really quite extraordinary. And of course, public health people do extraordinary things when extraordinary things are needed to happen. And I'm just so incredibly proud of the way the public health profession stepped up and took on the bulk of the responsibility, and particularly our registrar group. The registrars have been simply amazing and so flexible in able in doing their bit to help with the pandemic. But of course, it wasn't just the pandemic. We also had the um, announcement of the disestablishment of Public Health England, 
which was something that I spent the whole day on media and television, speaking my mind and truth to power about the um, the woeful decision that was made and to leave the country in a situation like that when we're going through the big, biggest pandemic of our time. So um, it was a very challenging and difficult time, I believe. I'm sure I, I couldn't agree more. How your, your role within that, was it... Um quite responsive, uh, depending on what was thrown at you? Or did you have a uh, an input into the decisions that were made? Yes, I think, sadly, the, the decision, um, if I just start with the decision on Public Health England, I think everyone would agree that that's, that was a political decision and terribly, terribly unfair, given the fantastic job that Public Health England was doing. And to fall foul of the politics... And to have that action was, was extremely difficult. So what made it easy for me is that simply that's unethical, in my opinion. So it was very easy to stand up for that and stand up for the colleagues, the chief executive and the colleagues within uh, Public Health England. But obviously, as a president, uh, in my opinion, to run something as complex as the faculty, you simply cannot make decisions on your own. It's very unhelpful if you're not working as a part of a leadership team. And I feel very proud that in my time as president of the faculty, we worked extremely well, faculty, faculty staff, officers of the faculty, the board, the faculty board, and everything was open and transparent. And our media, our advocacy and our policy work was all well planned and well designed. And we have amazing members of the faculty who also stood up and did a tremendous amount of work to support the public health community, support responses to the pandemic, and to be part of that, also working alongside the Academy of Royal Medical Colleges was really a a wonderful privilege, although it's very challenging. I'm sure, absolutely. And as you're leaving your presidency, do you feel excited for the state that you're leaving them in? What do you think they will look to accomplish in the in the coming years? Well, I think they'll go from strength to strength now. I think we've managed to, uh, with our fantastic board and the staff at the faculty, actually left the faculty in the best financial position it's been in, I think, since it was set up. So organisations, charitable organisations, to do their carry out their responsibilities, need to be in really good shape. There's nothing more miserable than working with or for a charity who's in financial trouble or in trouble with its governance. So I think we've left the faculty in a very, very strong position. It's very much the go-to organisation for people to seek advice and advocacy on public health. And I pay tribute to all all of the people involved in the faculty. I'm just, uh, I spent time being the figurehead, but in actual fact, it took all of us to work so hard to get the faculty back into that strong position. Thank you, Maggie. We talked about recent times, but among our listeners, there are many junior members of the profession and many others who are thinking about maybe becoming a registrar, joining the training or applying for a population health fellowship. I'm sure 
that they would be very interested in knowing a bit about your junior professional journey, where you trained, what you did before the training. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Of course, Dina. Uh, certainly, very happy to. Well, I always had a passion about public health because I grew up in Scotland where I think the stark health inequalities, I maybe didn't always understand what health inequalities were, but I knew there was a lot of poverty and I knew that a lot of people lived in very, very, very deprived circumstances and without a good education, without the opportunity to be able to have the benefit of education and work your way into good jobs, these communities were very prone to all the diseases caused by poverty. They were also very prone to all the other types of um, activities like alcohol misuse, drug misuse. A lot of people would be gambling and a lot of people, as I say, would simply be suffering from addictions. And I think that probably has stayed with me my whole career through my journey through public health, becoming a consultant in public health, becoming a director of public health, moving on to help run the training programme. And what I see in the young people who have joined public health or want to join public health is simply that passion, that passion to be the voice and the advocate for the people that don't have a voice and that the heart of everything we do has to be for us in public health to make sure that we are addressing these dreadful health inequalities in society. It's very powerful. Thank you, Maggie. And I suppose in your role, moving on, you've very quickly moved on and you've been recently elected president of the Royal Society of Medicine's Epidemiology and Public Health section. Is that correct? And what is your role there? Well, it's an interesting role because, you know, it's not it's not the same role as the faculty. And it's um, societies, the Royal Society of, uh, of Medicine is very interesting because I think societies probably allow you to be more flexible and to be able to focus a little bit more on specific issues and networking. Of course, we can do a lot of that within the Faculty of Public Health. We've got our special interest groups. But the, the faculty has a very much a statutory role in providing a number of specialist activities like the overseeing of the curriculum, exams, standard setting, CPD, whereas I think societies can have equally a nice opportunity for colleagues who want to give up their time to really feel they can do good for public health. And the, um, the Royal Society of Medicine, again, is an organisation where it has a very wide membership and there's members there from pretty much all the medical specialties. And it's a great opportunity, I think, to really build a coalition, coalition of people that want to do good. Another voluntary, it's a voluntary role, but again, a very important one. And I'm hoping in the next period of time, while I'm president there, we will focus on the population's health. That has to be core to everything the Royal Society does. 
and also to really be the champion for poverty and the cost of living crisis that we're currently facing, not just in the UK, but across the world. Thank you, Maggie. The influence that you, you're having and that you've had in this post is, is notable. One thing that many early trainees in public health may find difficult is sometimes the ability to find their voice, as you have done, to influence and to be a successful negotiator. What would you say to them? Well, I think we, I, you know, we don't all have to be the same. We're, one of the great beauties I have in working, running a training program is I am able to work with my registrars in public health who are all quite different, but they all bring something very important to the skill base of public health. And for a lot of people, networking and um, finding your way to take on leadership roles doesn't come easy. And that's why the beauty of the public health training program, it's not just giving you excellent technical public health skills, it's actually supporting your leadership journey so that you can enact your leadership for public health in the most effective and way that's comfortable to you. So I think there's some simple things that I could suggest that people might want to focus on. Um, in actual fact, um, Josh, and, Josh and I did, um, did one simple action last week. I was invited to write a BMJ article. I could have done it on my own. But I had, um, I had the offer from the BMJ to select two authors to do it with. So I chose to work with two registrars in public health. And that gave them, I hope, a really easy and useful opportunity to be able to have a voice and publish an editorial. So there's different ways that we can help and support each other to do that. It's one of the reasons I joined the Royal Society of Medicine, because I knew it would force me to network. And sometimes it doesn't always come naturally. But once you get into these different groups, and the Faculty of Public Health has a lot of special interest groups, then you get to meet like-minded people, and they'll give you encouragement. And I think to ensure that all our registrars in public health have excellent communication skills training. I think that's really, really vital and valuable because it's a lot of confidence, isn't it? You know, you need confidence to do these things and sometimes resilience because people may not want to listen to you and you have to probably be quite tenacious and resilient to keep going. Indeed. And, and I think it's also fair to say that our profession views may not always be popular. So we, we, we can be and we have been called nannying or similar in public health. What, what lessons have you learned in communicating to a broad audience? Well, you've made me smile now because I've been called many things in my time. That woman, that woman from public health. But, um, but I think it's quite skillful. I, I did a little video for the, um, for the um, UFA organization, which is the European um, public health uh, group. And they wanted me to talk about some of the skills you use in advocacy. And I have certainly learned a lot along the way. And one of the important lessons I've learned 
is sometimes you might find someone better than you who will be more effective to give the message. You don't always have to give the message yourself. So perhaps while you are honing your skills and you do that through trial and error, you might want to pick another individual, another leader, someone who's maybe from the group that you're trying to influence that may just simply be more effective in giving the message. I also think it's a very good skill to actually be able to partner up with bigger and more effective organizations if you really want to get a big impact. And as I say, when I was president of the faculty, I spent quite a lot of time talking and working with other presidents, sometimes helping them to get their message across. And um, I had a great privilege of being given honorary fellowship to a number of uh, other colleges and faculties, simply for my efforts to join them and try and help them. But equally, they were very supportive in coming along to help us in public health, particularly with um, two issues. If I may, I'd like to mention, do you know if that's okay? Absolutely. So the two issues that we felt particularly strong about as a public health community, the first was global vaccine equity. I think as public health professionals, we simply know that unless we can get more equity in the global vaccine, particularly for not just for COVID, but obviously COVID was the big issue that we had to deal with, then we're not, we're not going to improve the situation with the pandemic. And we managed to get every single college and faculty to support us in that. The whole academy supported that. And that was a, a great way of making our message much bolder and bigger. And the second, uh, second issue we managed to get signed up to was the work that we were doing on drug misuse, the dreadful number of people dying in the UK due to drug misuse. And we managed to get the whole academy to support that too. So it's, it's being enthusiastic, passionate, committed, but also being sophisticated about what methods you're going to use and who you can get to help you. Maggie, you, you mentioned earlier about, in relation to that, the importance of communication and networking. Um, I can attest to myself, as you mentioned with the recent article we collaborated on, the training program has opened up dramatically for me, opportunities for those. Um, we also mentioned the political decisions that you've had to deal with, the, the disestablishment of Public Health England, representing public health to government and industry throughout all of this. You've put yourself out there, and I think we've briefly touched on the openness to receiving criticism. What would you suggest for people wanting to work on their resilience more than we've already covered? So I think that's a really important question for, for us in public health, Josh, because resilience is, has got to be key to how we work because it's not going to be easy. It, hopefully it will be easy sometimes, but on the whole, you have to be prepared 
for quite a tough road if you're going to work in public health. And of course, you won't have patients thanking you every day, all day. And in fact, you probably will be lucky if you get any thanks at all. So personal resilience is very important. Looking after your own health, we would be very keen that other people look after their health. You have to look after your own health. And then my strong advice is to make sure that you don't go it alone. You always have colleagues and friends, family, people you can talk to, and particularly colleagues who can really help you. So not just people that are going to say, oh, that's wonderful, Maggie, or you're doing everything right, because actually you want an element of critical friend in there and for people to come up with maybe better ideas about how you're going about things, particularly if you run into difficulty. And I think you have to be prepared to play the long game. If I think about how tough it was for um, various CMOs that I've worked with, I had the great privilege of working in the department when Donald, um, when Donald um, sorry, after Donald Atchison was there, we had Kenneth Kalman. Then we had Liam Donaldson. I worked very closely with Liam because I led on health inequalities. And Liam was absolutely amazing as a leader, bringing in the smoke-free places. And that was really tough. And Liam uh, taught me a really important message. He said to me when he was talking about the difficulties and how, how challenging it was to work in government at that time, trying to bring in the smoking ban, which we all knew would save thousands of lives. He, he told me, you can only resign once. And I think that was an important lesson. So if you want to stay the journey of public health, you have to make sure that you have lots of support, especially for the downs as well as the ups. I agree. And talk about long timescales. Public health, of course, is focused on the longest timescales. We, we speak about patients and I, I agree, but professionals in public health, though, may not always feel that they have a seat at the necessary tables. And more than patients, I think, how do you motivate yourself to step up and achieve, for instance, all the things that you've achieved? Well, I think you have to have a strategy. And as I say, my style would be not to not to do it alone. And certainly in the jobs I've done, whether it's at the faculty or in my day jobs, is to try and create what I call a coalition of success. So make sure that you gather people who can help you influence and that you spend time with them and you build that trust and relationship so that you're going to be much stronger together. And then you're quite focused on what it is you're trying to ask for. I think one of the important lessons I, I had when I worked at the Department of Health was actually realizing that for some secretaries of state ministers, they just hear public health as a babble of voices. And all the things I've tried to do in my career is try and get unity on the public health messages. And we don't always agree, and that's quite healthy. But what we should be trying to do 
is to pick the things and and get the position that we do agree on and then transmit that. Because otherwise, as I say, the danger is people just hear multiple voices from public health. And to be honest, it makes it easy for them to ignore us because, you know, they'll walk behind the scenes and say, well, that, that public health group, they can never agree about anything. Well, actually, I think we can agree about lots of things. I think we can agree with other professions about lots of things. And I think we also need to have a good balance of some of the things we can do quickly that don't take 25 years to change and some of the things that actually will take longer. And I'm very keen and very happy to share with you some of the examples of how you get the balance right between things that could be delivered in 12 months and things that will take 25 years to get any impact on. That would be lovely. I, I was writing an article for um, about climate change, which is something I feel uh, very passionate about, and air quality too. And the interviewer, uh, it was a, an article being produced through an interview, uh, rather similar to this, and the the question the the interview interviewer was i think rather dubious about actions that you could reasonably take i just mean ordinary members of the public could take so i was able to quote for them um ucl do a very nice what's my top seven things i can do to improve climate improve uh, climate change and actually, they're really easy things that you can build into everyday life. And they're not, they're not, they're not difficult things. They can be done right away. Um, smoking is a fantastic example of how quickly you can make a change in people's lives. And um, child tooth decay would be another one. The minute children start to brush their teeth with fluoride toothpaste, magically, their teeth won't decay. So there's lots of simple things in public health, hypertension, getting hypertension under control. These are all quite quick fixes. Whereas, of course, something like child poverty needs to be started today, but may not change very quickly. But nevertheless, you can't say that that isn't important. And in public health, we need to be looking at the causes of the causes and the things that can be done quickly to improve people's health. Before your presidency, you worked for the faculty as a registrar and you also later became head of school for the training programme in the southwest of England. I see a pattern of dedication to improving training and development. Would you agree with that? Where do you feel you have been the most successful? Yes, well, I, I am very passionate about that and I think it's so important that people get good, good training because... The job is a difficult one, and I like to feel that if we equip people with training to the most excellent standard and give them plenty of variety, you know, people should have the opportunity to know what it's like to work at the local level, to know what it's like to work at region, and to know what it's like to work nationally, because the variety within public health, I think, is one of the things that keeps it so exciting. And obviously, some people want to go into an academic career. Other people want to specialise in health protection. But if you're equipping people with all the necessary skills and giving them 
some taster sessions of the different opportunities, I think that does equip them for all the changes. I was um, talking to Samir Gray this week because we'd been writing a book together. And he was uh, telling me that the current change that we're going through at the moment in England with the ICSs, he thinks that's his 20th change. And I think it's my 17th change in structuring reorganisation since I started my public health career. So equipping people with the ability to be able to respond to any pandemic or major incident, to be able to work across any political environment and still keep focused on the important things in public health, I think are really vital. And and you mentioned a book there. What is the book on? Oh, yes. Well, we are very, very keen. Uh, Muir and I have often collaborated together over the years. I've learned a great deal from Muir. He was the person that taught me all about screening and how to set up screening programs. So we're writing, um, we've just finished this book. It will soon be, we're not, I I should also say that it's, um, we're not, we're not making any royalties out of it. If anything is made, uh, we're not expecting to make anything, it'll go to charity. But it's about population health care. And I was really pleased to do it because in my own experience in running the training programme in the Southwest, I sometimes find that some areas become weak because some areas take more prominence. So obviously in the last couple of years, we've had a big injection of skills and training on health protection, particularly due to COVID and, of course, now monkeypox. But in actual fact, we probably need more on healthcare public health and probably need more focus on screening and immunisation. So I'm very keen to upskill in the area of healthcare public health. Very good. That's, that's lovely. Thank you. And you mentioned as well previously, uh, you've mentioned a, a particular interest in working to reduce inequalities. Um, through growing up, you said that you, you knew of, you saw health inequalities and perhaps didn't understand as well as you do now exactly what that meant. Could you tell us a little bit more about the work you've done in this space and what more needs to be done? Yes, uh, I mean, I, I probably, like most of us, had a fairly normal upbringing so you know I wasn't in poverty I didn't I didn't want for anything and um, you know there was always food to eat so you can become very protected and not really understand how other people live their lives and my first job in uh, Scotland I was working more directly in the community and I also got involved in prison health. I went to Berlini prison, which I have to say was very, very scary. I'd never been to a prison before. And it was in the era where we were trying to develop Berlini as a special unit, where we were trying to give more um, education and health focus for the prisoners. And I have to say, it always stood me in very good street cred when I moved to England 
and I had a prison in my local patch in Wiltshire when I went into that prison and they said, oh, if you've been in prison before, I suggest I've been in Berlini. So that went down very well because Berlini was one of the, you know, renowned as a, a hardcore prison. But really understanding how people live their lives that, you know, we always, I used to think health was so important. Why people, why people, why don't people take it seriously? But if you're trying to earn enough money just to keep a roof over your head and feed your family, then probably health is something secondary to that. And people don't prioritize it. And of course, as I say, people do get involved in crime, addictions, all sorts of other activities that exacerbate their health. So I think that was the start of my journey. But I did have, um, I did have the fantastic opportunity of leading on health inequalities and local delivery in the early 2000s at the Department of Health. That, that was just an amazing opportunity for someone like me who's so interested in health inequalities. And we've seen many of these inequalities, I think, be worsened by the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's reshaped public health in the UK massively, as it has everywhere. Moving on from the pandemic, um, where do you think we start? Do we need to be more targeted in our approach or is it our duty as public health professionals to be pushing for wholesale change? Well, one of the lessons I, I learned when I was um, responsible for infant mortality and life expectancy, and when I say responsible, I was actually summoned to the cabinet to actually defend what we were doing on, on the targets. So it was pretty pretty scary, although I did have fantastic support from uh, Liam Donaldson, as I said, and uh, the deputy chief medical officers. But we did actually manage in that era to get a fantastic strategy that would deliver. And I worked with fantastic people like Michael Marmont. And um, we did actually manage to statistically significantly reduce the gap through that strategy. And so I believe we could and we can improve the situation on health inequalities. Of course, it is going to be really, really tough. It's not just COVID. We've got the cost of living crisis now. But I think with the right strategy and the right targeting, we can make an impact. And we have to focus because the other lesson I learned from that job is that just doing interventions on public health without targeting is likely to widen health inequalities. And if you look at any data set, whether it's uptake of screening, uptake of immunization, COVID immunizations, uptake of access to treatment, it doesn't really matter what you look at it will be skewed to the benefit of the better off people. And it's the people living in poverty and deprivation who, who will be last in the queue to get the intervention unless we work hard to give it to them first. And this, this segues very well into the next question because when we talk about tackling the fundamental drivers of inequality, it is almost unavoidable to speak about the economy, housing, education, access to equal opportunities. 
and and this does become rapidly political, even when explored professionally. Many in public health uh, therefore feel a little bit uncomfortable for fear of being branded as political or seen as not independent. Uh, is public health becoming more like the civil service or is it still an independent, self-regulating profession in your mind? Well, I think in my in my practice, I I have no problem in speaking truth to power. And I never had any problem when I worked in the Department of Health of speaking truth to power because I think I didn't cross the line of being party political and... I don't have any party, party political allegiances. So it's, it's not difficult for me because if I, my golden rule is if something's not right and I would say it to any government, any, any political party, then it should be said. So I was certainly very, very vocal because one of the things that I found very frustrating and irritating was this ridiculous nonsense that you make decisions about economy or you make decisions about health. And I think we all saw that play out, particularly in England, less so in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. But in England, we had this ridiculous nonsense that we either protect the public, public's health, or we protect the economy. And it's completely outrageous. Economy and health are inextricably linked. You cannot have a healthy economy without healthy people and vice versa. So yes, hijacking politics to make these sort of arguments. And I think, again, I had the great privilege of working with Derek Wanless, who was a banker. My background did work for the World Bank who actually demonstrated in his very famous reports how important it was to invest in health and prevention because it was simply cheaper and produced a better outcome. You, you, you already mentioned it. Clearly, the pandemic has had a significant impact on us as, as a people, as it has on so many other um, countries and communities. Uh, Reflecting on the last two years, what, what do you think are the key lessons that we should take away from the pandemic as a community? Well, I would like to hope that the public health voice, I think it's definitely got stronger from the pandemic. And I think we've got to keep that positioning. So we've got to ensure that public health remains relevant and is important particularly in the area of population health, not just in health protection. And I think the, 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 the goodwill and the positioning that we've managed to achieve, and in spite of political decisions to disestablish Public Health England, we have retained all of those functions, albeit unhelpfully, they're in a, in my opinion, they're in a much more complex landscape, but we still have all those functions. There's been no cut to those functions. And the, the person who lost their job, sadly, was the, the chief executive, Duncan Selby, of PHE, of which I, I am still, um, I'm still very um, sad and disgruntled about 
And I'm glad that Duncan has gone on to do amazing things and is um, very happy with what he's doing. But we have preserved those functions. And those functions are going to be the thing that transforms the population's health. So keeping our positioning, making sure that we're working with the NHS, we're working with OHID, we're working with local government, particularly in the English context, But as I say, we mustn't be dominated by England because the other three nations of the UK have a very important place in this. And often their policy on public health is simply much further ahead. If you take something like the um, pricing of alcohol, Scotland was leading the way with Wales and Northern Ireland moving forward and England nowhere in that agenda. So we can learn from other nations of the UK, but we can also learn from people across the world. And I've heard you say to public health professionals before to always be prepared. I I guess that's true for major incidents as well as the examples closer to home that you've mentioned. How do you keep that mindset and keep pushing others to do so over the course of a career? Well, I think it's very vital and important that everyone has excellent training in not just health protection, but in emergency emergency response. And you get really confident about that. And I think if you're really good at being able to respond to emergencies, part of that training will actually make sure that you've always got at least 5% of your brain power for thinking and thinking ahead. So reacting quickly and reacting in a way that is all-encompassing, I think is the lessons that I learned from September the 11th. And again, I had the great privilege of chairing the cross-government response to September the 11th And at that time, you know, the the whole world was in shock. And I think at the time we were having about at least 100 white powder incidents in London. And there was a great fear factor that we would have bioterrorism, whether it was anthrax or smallpox releases. And this um, important work of preparing and the lessons learned from September the 11th was to act quickly but scale up. You can always scale down in an emergency but if you don't scale up the emergency will always run ahead of you and you'll never catch up and to be fair a lot of the time in Covid it felt a bit like that. the virus seemed to be ahead of us most of the time. And I would like to think that people are better prepared. But I'd also say it's not just about major incidents. I think being prepared in general, I have often said to my registrars, I I don't go to a meeting without knowing what the meeting's about or what might be happening at the meeting and preparing for the meeting and perhaps talking to people before I even get to the meeting. So I think there's lots of skills in that being prepared that really serve you well as as a public health professional. Do you think we're prepared in our current state? Where do you think we need to put the most work in? 
Well, I think it would be good to have some more um, what I call hot debriefs from things that have happened. And I would encourage that in our day-to-day work and and day-to-day practice. And I feel that, um, you know, okay, we're going to have an inquiry about COVID, but that could be 10 years before it reports. And I always remember reading... um, the pandemic that um, that was H1N1, or commonly called swine flu. The report after that was by Dame Deirdre Hine, had two main lessons. And two of the lessons at the top of her list were, again, it probably won't surprise you when I say it, but the two lessons were we have to have better testing and better PPE. And of course, I think we'd all agree that the COVID response, two of the weak areas were testing and PPE. So one hopes with the impact of COVID, these lessons would be learned. But I think not just sitting back for government doing things, I think as health professionals, public health professionals, we can make sure that our practice has influence and the ability to take the lessons learned and be better prepared for the future. And whether it's honing your skills and how to chair a good instant meeting, whether it's spending time getting to know your emergency partners before you get to a major instant, all those things are within our gift to do. We don't need to wait for government to tell us what to do. Thank you, Maggie. We are coming to the end of our time now, but thank you so much for everything you've shared with us today. As a more general question is a little bit of a tradition on on the podcast, uh, what one career tip would you give to those currently training in public health? And as the most traditional question on this podcast, where should they spend their study budget? <laughs> well, that's that's a really good question. So the first bit of it, I would say do please try to get out from behind your computer. I don't ever see public health as just people who write things. I mean, writing, research, scientific papers, all very, very important. But I'm a firm believer of the what I call the immersive experience. And in my practice, whether it was at the Department of Health, at the Department of Health, I worked with people in London who I needed to influence, but they'd never been to a deprived area. They'd never been to someone's house who was living in poverty. And so I used to arrange trips. And every Friday we would go some part of the country outside London and meet people, real people, who were living really quite difficult lives. And I also did that in my practice as a DPH in Wiltshire. I used to take the counsellors to the prison. I took them out at two, three in the morning to look at what was happening on the streets with the nighttime economy. Took them up to the hospital where all the drunks were coming in. Took them to the prison. And I think making sure that public health isn't just about sitting behind a computer writing things. I think also, if you're feeling a little bit jaded, going out to meet people 
who you can really help, brings back why we all wanted to join public health in the first place. So that would definitely be my, my tip. And then the luxury of a study budget. How wonderful is that to have a study budget? Well, certainly in the Southwest, I always encourage all of my registrars to spend their study budget. It's there for them. Often in the first couple of years, they're overblessed with opportunities because they've got masters to do. They've got lots of exciting things that happen anyway. And of course, they have to do the exams. But I think actually finding a way where you can build your technical skills, your leadership, your communication, that would be very good use of of the budget, in my, my opinion. And it's a real privilege to have it. So I am very, very keen that people use it. Thank you so much, Maggie. And uh, uh, I think we have reached the end of this episode, which marks again the, the restart of the third season after a little bit of a COVID break. Uh, Josh, would you like to also say bye to our listeners? Maggie, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dino and Josh. You've made this a real pleasure. I have to say I was rather nervous coming to do it. But actually, you've made it so easy for me. And um, as I say, it's been a real, real pleasure to speak to you both. And um, I do hope people will think about trying different things in their public health career trying to embrace the different experiences. And just to say, none of my journey was planned. Usually I'm a sucker for someone says, can you come and help us? But that's produced, uh, I think, a great assortment of different jobs in different international, national, regional, local level, all been great fun. And I wish the same for all of you. Thank you, Maggie. And the podcast in a very, very small scale is one of those experiences that has certainly formed part of mine, but in the future also Josh's experience in training. Thank you, everyone, and uh, goodbye to the next episode. Thank you.